0: You are listening to Marvel's pollist for new comics on sale November 4th, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, we have passed the Halloween season. Were there any final movies or experiences that you treated yourself to? Um, there are a couple of movie podcasts that
1: I listened to that inspired me to dig into some old faves. And that included Nightmare on Elm Street. The original and then my sweet sweet girlfriend she had never seen alien so that had to be done
0: wow our producer jorge is aghast at that <laughs> uh all right we are not here to just talk about movies we have to talk about some brand new books that are coming out this week uh we got a lot some big favorites let's dive into him tucker you're up first
1: all right, let's do this. We are starting off with Amazing Spider-Man number 51. This is written by Nick Spencer and Matthew Rosenberg with art by Federico Vicentini, colors by Marcio Meniz, and letters by VC's Ariana Mar. I love to see a name like Federico's in the credits on Amazing Spider-Man. It's always great to see a new name jump on board of one of the big books like this. This is part two of of Fallen Order. Uh, this issue pits Sin Eater right up against a whole host of Spidey heroes, which is awesome to see. I love it. And I say this as a huge compliment that I can feel the collaboration of Nick and Matt in this book. I can feel them working together, writing these characters, writing this dialogue. I think Matthew Rosenberg, this is exactly the type of book that he was born to write because he has the drama, he has the quips, he has the kind of lightning dialogue Uh, And he makes everything so much fun uh, with so much heart at the same time. So it's perfect to see him jump on board and hear more big moves on the way in this issue. Things that continue to shock and surprise and really leave me in awe of the work that this entire team has been doing and will continue to do, I'm sure, in Amazing Spider-Man.
0: Yeah. All right, let's go over to Atlantis Attacks number four. Glad to see this book back on track. Uh, It is written by Greg Pak, art by Ario Anandito and Robert Gill, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Look, all you need to know shirtless namor versus everybody (laughs) uh it's we've got this whole storyline going on where namor um has been fighting for his people as he often does and we've got the city of pan which is this cool city of multiple cities and and there's you know secrets and and lies. We actually get some big revelations in here. One of my favorite moments is uh, when the you've got the agents of Atlas who are involved in this, like the cool old school team with the robot and 3D Man and everything. And then Marvel Boy, who is well, I guess he's not called Marvel Boy anymore. He's called the Uranian. He says, "I'm sorry, Amadeus. Namor is our ally. We've got to help him." I just like good bros sticking by their dude, being like. Yeah, he's kind of rampaging right now, but he's justified to be pissed off. Also, he's our friend. We're going to back him up. Screw you. I just love that kind of stuff.
1: Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Avengers number 38, which is by Jason Aaron and Ed McGinnis. The two greats with inks on this by Mark Morales, colors by Jason Keith and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. This book is simultaneously so many different things. It's really amazing. I think it has a lot of kinship with Amazing Spider-Man in that way where somehow uh, Jason on this book, Nick in ASM are just spinning so many plates all at the same time. So many different storylines. With this, it feels like in this book particular, it feels like the perfect microcosm of what this series has been in general because we start out – Uh, centuries ago, somewhere in the Kansas territory, creepy, weird horror action. Then we get into some classic superhero, classic Avenger stuff. Then we have a page with just these big bouncing baby action. Um, There is so much going on. We have cosmic stuff. We have elemental figures from the beginning of the universe. We have I don't want to say what we have beyond that, but I think it in a way captures the spirit of a crazy slam bang superhero book like Avengers needs to be, and I think Ed McGuinness is the artist to pull it off. I just love this book. I love the ambition of it, and I love the the kind of genre balancing at the same time. I guess that's the best, most concise way to put it that has been going on in here. Because once you think, okay, I think I have a handle of where this is going, what this is going to be, it shifts direction again and takes you in a totally new angle, uh, and it just works. It's great.
0: Heck yeah. Also great this week is Black Widow, number three, written by Kelly Thompson, art by Elena Casagrande, colors by Jordi Belair, VCs Corey Pettit doing the letters. Man, oh man. Look, everybody who listens to the show knows I'm a huge Kelly Thompson mark. I am in for anything she writes, literally anything. She always delivers completely for me. And this book, I got so nervous reading it. There's like, if, if you're following along with this book, there's something up with Natasha. Black Widow is living in a very different situation than normal. I'm trying to not spoil things. The tension that comes from what her life is like at this point in the story grows and grows and grows to the point where like, I, th- I thought I couldn't finish the book at one point. I was like, I, I, I can't see if something happens here. Um, but I finished it and it's great. It's a gorgeous book. It is so intense and wonderful. You've also got Clint and Bucky having little bits of banter together. And then you throw in Yelena Belova, the White Widow. She gets into the mix. Man, this book rules. If you are not reading Black Widow at this point, you're missing out on one of my favorite books that's out right now.
1: The Kelly action continues with our next book, Captain Marvel number 23. It's written by Kelly Thompson with art by Lee Garbett. Flashback art in this issue by Belen Ortega, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters in production by VCs Clayton Cowles. The end of the last issue, which I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about so much because it is such a big kind of part of this issue, and I feel like the the reverberations of, of that are still vibrating around, um, but we pick up right away in some really, really cool, really heavy, so much heart in this issue that I just love. The colors in here in particular, I want to give another shout out. Antonio Fabella I think are beautiful um it's a great book it is uh you know this is uh heart and soul and so much love for characters spilled out onto a book and that manifests both in these places where we've seen Carol reach such high highs and in places where we've seen her challenged unlike ever before uh I think this creative team does such a great job of all of that uh and it's just a delight to read and oh look at that I think we might have more Kelly on the way here
0: Yes, it's a Kelly Thompson hat trick as we get into Deadpool number eight, written by Kelly, with pencils by Gerardo Sandoval, with inks by Victor Nava and Gerardo, with colors by Chris Sotomayor and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Um, I want to give a shout out to Gerardo here because he just does really cool, monstrous, gnarly, weird creatures so well, makes them just look so big and toothy and scary and nasty. Uh, and in this issue and the story that we're in right now, Deadpool is with Elsa Bloodstone and they are fighting these bone beast creatures, which are just like, have you seen the movie Attack the Block?
1: You know, I haven't on my list. How Has dare been on my list you, for a Tucker, long time. Get out Early of Early Boyega.
0: Uh, yep. Yeah, fun fact. Early Boyega was interviewed by me on Marvel Live at New York Comic Con the year that Attack the Block came out. But the creatures in Deadpool kind of remind me of the creature monster things in uh, Attack the Block in, in like a great way. And the way it's visualized in the comic, so, so cool. Uh, also, you just got really cool moments for Deadpool really messed up moments for elsa and a great ending because i cannot wait to see what happens next issue
1: oh yeah all right next up we have guardians of the galaxy number eight which is written by al ewing with art by marcio takara colors by federico and letters by vc's Corey pettit we have rocket raccoon back in this book being about as classic rocket as you can get and it is so much fun to see and i say that including fedora Um, What's really fun about Guardians of the Galaxy and I think what this issue really manifests beautifully is that it's not a team book in that it's a group of characters together saying, Here we are, a united front, and we're going to go and do this thing. It's actually all about the chaos within that. It's about harnessing the chaos, putting a bunch of these characters into a bowl, shaking it up, and see what happens uh, as they clash into each other, as they bump and bruise each other. Uh, It's really, really fun. And I think amidst all the cosmic action that's gone on, not just of the last few months, but looking into the future, uh, it is a perfect time to uh, be reading a Guardians of the Galaxy book because it really captures that space faring adventurous feeling all the same time. Um, I have so much good things to say about this book, about this creative team. It's just really, really, really fun.
0: As we've been doing uh, these past couple weeks, where we have Ten of Swords issues all across the board, we are going to pass over Marauders number 14 for the moment uh, and touch on the Ten of Swords books at the end. But let's talk about Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 20, written by Saladin Ahmed, with pencils by Marcelo Ferreira, which... Whoo, Marcelo, crushing it this week. Uh, we've got inks by Wayne foucher and Marcelo, colors by David Curiel and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. You know, this one is an interesting one. It kind of like to me is the other side of the coin to what's going on in Amazing Spider-Man. And with you know, you've got Peter Parker, Spidey, and and his sort of group and family and chaos and and the city is is just uh, everything's like. Essentially on fire, uh, and then over here in Miles' book, it's Miles and his uncle, Uncle Aaron, who's the Prowler, and a whole bunch of his close Miles' close friends and family dealing with Brooklyn side uh, chaos, and everything is on fire as the like goblins are everywhere. Uh, but some of my favorite bits in here are like just the team up moments where you've got Captain America side by side with Miles and the Prowler, uh, alongside Bombshell. And um, and Starling and, like, Miles's dad. It's awesome. The ending of this book is bonkers. I, I love this storyline so much. If you are a fan of all things Ultimate, jump on in this one.
1: Next up, we go to The Rise of Ultraman, which is written by Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom, with art by Francesco Mana, colors by Espen Grudetjern, and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. I continue to be more and more invested in this book Um, I've mentioned before about this I wasn't super familiar with this character before and so every single page is teaching me new stuff and I think that's so exciting it's so much fun this is one of those issues where you start off a new series issue one is kind of the bam pow uh, uh, you know intro and then issue two is like all right we're settling in once you get to issue three you're in it you're in the story The beats, you know, they mean a lot for the story that's to come uh, and we're really humming here. And that's the feeling I had reading this and uh, knowing that and also continuing to becoming familiar with this character makes it really, really fun. I'm excited to see where we go forward with Ultraman.
0: Yeah, it's dope. If you're a fan of Ultraman, this is a a great like re-envisioning of what the the mythos is. Um, All right, let's move on to Star Wars number eight written by Charles Soule, with art by Jan Bazaldua, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg and letters by VC's Clayton Cowles this is part 2 of the will of Tarkin uh the first part we really got to sink our teeth into like and see who Zara is commander Zara this uh imperial officer and this one it was like she friggin' rules she's one of my favorite new characters that we've seen like added to Star Wars canon uh and added into like i'm, I'm reading this i'm like man i would love to see her in movies or in animation or something because this character is badass she follows through she's just like she's an an empire officer so she's also scum but there's something to her that i'm like i want to know more about her i want to follow her um we'll see what happens to her but she does some stuff in this issue uh while she's chasing and leading uh, leia into a trap it's Look, this, this book is a riot. It's cool. It's pure, pure Star Wars. Inject it into yourself right now.
1: Definitely agree. All right, next up we go to Thor number nine. It's written by Donny Cates with art by Nick Klein, colors by Matt Wilson, and letters and design by VCs Joe Sabino. Uh, this is really fun because we started out with a huge story arc. Then we had a little two-issue story arc in there in the middle, and now we're starting another big one. Uh, and who do we start it with? But of course, Donald Blake. He's here, he's back, he's a big part of the story to come, and it's so exciting. And then we also have some great Thor and Loki stuff in here, which is really, really awesome. I gotta say, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how Nick Klein does it, but the dude just gets better and better. It is nutso. It is crazy. Of course, we know that Mount Wilson is one of the best colorists in the industry. And then to pair him with Nick Klein with the heavy metal crazy like scream and have spittle coming out of your mouth going cr- I it's just so awesome Nick Klein is one of those things where Nick Klein was born to illustrate this book in particular uh, it is so awesome if you haven't been reading this book Get on it because it is just so much fun to read and it is just, uh, you know, you can feel the weight of every page in a big way. It's great. Uh,
0: Also, exciting stuff. Uh, We started to, uh, as we were working on this episode, we just said, why haven't we brought back the bell? to Whoa. To talk about our uh, our favorites, our personal picks of the week. So, um, with that in mind, we're reinstating the bell, and you've got <laughs> the first one up, Tucker.
1: Yes, I do. My pick this week is U.S. Agent number one. It's written by Priest, with art by George uh inks by Carl Story, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. This is one of those where. I knew pretty much before I opened this book I was going to love it, but I was so clueless about what it was going to be, and what it ended up being was so, so awesome. That's the thing with a character like John Walker is you say, how are they going to toe the line? Where are they going to go? Are they going to lean more into the heroic side of this? Are we going to see something completely new? Are they going to lean really heavily into the anti-hero segment of it? Who knows? Um, But to see the new characters introduced here, to see the new direction... Um, And more than anything, just the kind of energy that the book is giving off um, to get a look at this issue and say, okay, with this five-issue limited series that we're going to get here, what story are we going to tackle? What direction are we going? Because with something like that, you can't waste a single issue. And uh, we are off to the races here with U.S. Agent. I was so, so delighted to read this. Um, It delivers all the action you would want from a book like this, but all of the conflict as well. And I say that both external and internal. And that's what's so fascinating to me. And that is what I love to see in a priest book. And that's what uh, we certainly get here. Really,
0: really exciting stuff. All right. It is time for my... Pick of the week, which is Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, number one. Yeah, MFers, we're doing it. Uh, I love this book so much. I think we were picking our picks before we started uh, rolling, and I, I chose this. And
1: Damn, it's good.
0: So good. Oh, uh, We've got three stories in here. So the idea behind Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, and this is a four-issue limited series, is that all the stories are in black and white except for the color red. And so we have three stories. I'll go through them. Uh, The first one is called The Beast Within Them. It's written by Jerry Duggan, art by Adam Kubert, colors by Frank Martin. This one is a Weapon X era storyline, which is cool. It's, It's Wolverine sort of reflecting back or like the man inside the monster, the monster that was created by Weapon X and what he's thinking as they basically unleash him versus another monster that has been created in order... To just do some science, and it's a heartbreaking, just gnarly, wild story. If you read this and you don't go, Adam Kubert's one of the greatest. You're wild because there's, there's like a way, really cool layouts, beautiful double page spread, um, subtle moments, quiet moments, bloody, brutal, vicious, horrifying bits to it. It is everything you could want out of a, a Weapon X era wolverine story uh the second story is called i shall be a wolf by uh matthew rosenberg whom we've talked about and we love art by joshua kasara recently on the show uh whom we also love uh and then colors by guru efx um uh, who's who's a pal i love him this one is a spy story it's The freaking first panel there are i think eight dead slash dismembered bodies in this like room where wolverine is bleeding out as well and the use of the red is the only color is so evocative here. The ending for this, I thought it was going to go slightly different, and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's just nasty. Um, it's so good, and it's called I Shall Be a Wolf. Man, it's it ruled so hard. Then we have a third story called Cabin Fever. It is written and drawn and colored by Declan Shalvy with uh, oh, letters for all these stories is by VCs Clayton Cowles. Uh, the third story is sort of like a classic Wolverine on the road in Canada, just trying to clear his head, stops to help somebody. And it's Wolverine. And, you know, like the color red doesn't really show up for a while. And it's that build. And Wolverine gets embroiled in something that is uh that he didn't ask for, he didn't want to be a part of, but boy oh boy he's going to finish it. As the the violence escalates in the storyline, the caption boxes go from white to pink to mostly red to all red. It is man is beautiful storytelling. This is great comics. If you love Wolverine, this is a must read.
1: Yeah, completely completely agree. Okay, next up we have Web of Venom, Empire's End, number one, which is written by Clay McLeod Chapman with art by Gaiu Villanova, colors by Frank D'Armada, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This book creeped me out. It starts to beat the drums of the king in black because Noel is involved here, and it's just really, really cool to see a story like this from what is mostly a scroll perspective and to, you know, slowly, slowly become enmeshed in the madness. That is everything. God is coming. That is everything King in Black. That is everything on the way uh, later this year. It's really, really awesome. I love this kind of book that actually serves as a great story in and of itself, but also a cool bridge between some big events. It's really, really fun. It's a a great read.
0: All right. It is time to get into 10 of Swords. We have two issues out this week, the first of which is is X-Men number 14, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Mahmoud Asrar and Linneal Francis Yu, with colors by Sonny Go, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. So we're on the eve of the giant beginning battle between Krakoa and Arako, the champions of each. We have 10 fighters on each side, 10 swords on each side, and we're about to go into all that. And so the quiet moment that we get into here is Apocalypse in a garden face-to-face with his wife, the love of his life whom he left behind. Uh, she is Genesis of Arako. They basically recount the entire story of Arako. So this one is a huge for basically saying what the history of this group is and what they're fighting for, what they've lost to what they've won against what they're all about. It's a huge moment for this entire story. Uh, also if you're a big apocalypse fan, as I am, he has just become so sympathetic and you just want to like give him a big old hug and be like, it's all right, Slugger, we're going to be fine. But I don't know that everything's going to be fine. I really yeah. don't. That's what I love about this story. I'm not sure. It's great.
1: Yeah. All right, our last book this week and rounding out um, the uh, chapter with chapter number 13 of Ten of Swords is Marauders number 14. It's written by Jerry Duggan and Benjamin Percy with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VC's Corey Pettit. This is so interesting because this isn't quite war. Certainly the ramifications are as big as war, but. I mean, in this issue, we start out with the menu of the dishes that are being served to the sword of Arako and Krakoa. Now, when we get into the work here, it's not just dinner. It's not just all nice and people just kind of hanging out and, and clinking glasses. There is a lot of tense uh, moments in here, as you might expect, given what we are, like you mentioned, on the eve of. And uh, woo, I was not ready for where we were going to end up here. Um, it says a lot that people in our office are so excited about this and they're coming and certainly with me, just out of nowhere talking to me about it every single day. Did you read this issue? Did you read this issue? That doesn't happen that often with people who are inside the game like we are so lucky to be. We are very much speeding towards the conclusion now. We are past the halfway point. We are going to hit only big beats and big moments from now on. Uh, So everything we've been building to is about to... Uh, hit the floor in a very big way
0: well said tucker uh before we get into our reading club piece let's talk about what are the collections this week
1: let's talk about it we have black panther by Tanahasi Coates volume three the intergalactic empire of wakanda part one we have disney kingdom's haunted mansion marvel verse deadpool and wolverine the marvel art of adam kubert thor by donny cates volume one the devourer king and venom epic collection symbiosis
0: Yes. And on Marvel Unlimited, which, reminder, now books are three months in Marvel Unlimited after they've hit stand. So we've got new issues of Cable, Empire, uh, Star Wars, Darth Vader, the first issue of X-Factor and X-Men number 10, Among all of the others Uh, you can get the full list on marvel.com along with all the other information about this week's books Uh, and it's time for our reading club which is with one of my favorite people miss lorraine sink co-host of this week in marvel and co-host of so many other things Uh, (laughs) lorraine tucker and i we talk about her reading club pick of the first bunch of issues of sensational she-hulk by john byrne boy oh boy I, I keep looking at these issues, wanting to go back and, and read the entire run after having this conversation. It's, uh, it's a great time, great books. Let's get into chatting with Lorraine right now. Lorraine freaking Sink, welcome to Marvel's Pull List. How are you, my friend?
2: <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm back. I've taken like a three and a half year hiatus from Pull List, but I'm here. <laughs> And I'm ready to talk about comic books. And the most exciting thing of all—no offense, Ryan—but Tucker, because I see you all the time, Ryan. But Tuck, I don't get to see every day.
0: I know it's a dang delight, Tucker. If you steal my catchphrase, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna throttle you. You didn't pull a 3D; you was only a 2D. So <laughs> that that is fine. Uh, one thing I like about this is because I of course, on shows with both of you here on Marvel's Pull List as well as on This Week in Marvel. I feel like Wolverine. Whereas the two of you are collectively the X-Men or the Avengers because Wolverine, he's like, oh, the X-Men want me. Oh, the (laughs) Avengers want me. Oh, I'm the darling over here. Oh, I'm the darling over there, which is authentic Wolverine dialogue. Uh, All right. We are not here to talk about Wolverine. We are here to talk about your pick for Reading Club. Lorraine, what you got for us?
2: Um, I am really excited because I chose Sensational She-Hulk by John Byrne. Uh, the OG 1989 run, because it's one of my favorites, I talk to Ryan about it all the time, and I finally am forcing him to read it specifically with me.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad you did. Uh, I've read the first issue a number of times, but I, I, for whatever reason, I've only read sporadic issues in the run, never on through. I blazed through these six issues, oh, and I yeah. was like, I wish I didn't have a hundred other things to do, because I just want to... F- Keep reading.
2: They're so fun, right?
0: Tucker, had you ever uh read this series before? I think I think as well. I had read
1: the first issue, but hadn't gone beyond that. And it was really amazing to me, more than anything, just how fun it is. I think maybe it's just the Hulk side of things that people in general, or maybe just specifically me, like I associate with like a more dramatic, like intense tone. But it is just like a romp. I had so much fun. It was awesome.
2: Oh my god! I mean, it truly is Deadpool before Deadpool. Yeah. You know, like, that's the thing that just kills me about it. It's so funny. There's so many asides. It's so fourth wall breaking. I love that even (laughs) as you're reading, it'll be like, this issue isn't funny enough. Like, there will fully be, like, a note (laughs) in the corner, like, this issue isn't funny enough. So we're just going to, like, tell some knock-knock jokes, essentially.
0: (laughs) It it reminds me in some ways of old, like, slapstick, black and white, Mm -hmm. like, comedies of where you just have, from the get-go, it is on. It is gags and humor and jokes and as you're trying to process one thing something else is already firing and it's hilarious but it's also a gorgeous book
2: gorgeous it's so gorgeous I mean some of the artwork in this is just I mean it's like John Byrne having way too much fun unattended clearly obviously like the superhero stuff is beautiful She-Hulk is like gorgeous hulking muscular badass but then like my favorite like, I love that there's a point where, you know, she hooks literally like, oh, the cosmic stuff. And they show a bunch of ships. And then, literally, she's like, you can do better, Burn. And then <laughs> there's, like, a crazy Kirby-esque, like, huge two-page splash of just, like, an amazing sort of, like, black and white, that sort of mixed media looking cosmos. And it's so good. It's That's tremendous. A, you just get a, a cavalcade of friggin weirdos, which is... Yeah. My jam. Yeah. Just all the weirdest characters are like, this is my book.
0: Lorraine, when was the first time you read this series?
2: Um, I definitely read like bits and pieces as a kid, which I think flew over my head. But I really sat down and read all of She-Hulk's continuity a couple of years ago when I was working on my book, Powers of a Girl. Because I was like, I just want to truly understand this character. And because she was created in like 79, 80, she was really easy to kind of go back and read her canon because she either is a solo series or she's in a team book, but she's not usually doing a lot uh, or like multiple books, like line wide. So she's really easy to sit down and read all of. And it was just so good. I'm a, I'm just very obsessed with She Hulk as a character in general because she's like so badass and so funny. And I and Burn it to me is like quintessential She Hulk voice to me now.
1: Was Jen Walters always this kind of tone? Was it always this way from mm-hmm. book one, or did it evolve? And like how? in your like research and your perspective on this character did did she get to this point
2: well it's kind of interesting because to my knowledge she hulk was really created around the hulk television show to as a sort of ip play like they were like oh well we should definitely have a female hulk character so we can sort of own it and like cultivate that voice so that first she hulk book was created but um the book itself in Savage She-Hulk, it's it's much more straightforward. It's more of a Bruce Banner story. But as it goes along, you can tell like she can't get any of the A-class villains. So it is like a real rogues gallery of just D-list insane characters. And as it goes on, she's not as cheeky or like fourth wall breaking as she is during John Byrne. That was really John Byrne loved working with her in Avengers and Fantastic Four and then just took this book and like ran with it. Because um, he clearly just, he wrote the funniest stuff for She-Hulk in all of the team books. She'd always be like, oh, I got to fix my car. And then she'd like pick it up and carry it away. You know, just chef's kiss all the time. But in that first Savage She-Hulk run, she was really more straightforward. You know, she was really a, trying to be a lawyer. She was always pulled between Zapper, her boyfriend with a mustache, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but like some D-list dude, um, neither of which were very good boyfriends, but she was kind of like pushed and pulled and her father was the sheriff and it was the sort of classic, um, you know, I'm a vigilante and my father is the sheriff who doesn't (laughs) agree with this. Uh, So there was a lot more like sort of dramatic turmoil and a lot of sort of D-list characters. So it's sort of like a weird, uh, like a kind of keeping it weird drama, Mm -hmm. whereas this is just like, we know we're weird and we're just like going for it now.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And 1989, John Byrne is just can kind of get away with it in a way, mm-hmm. you know, like he can get a book that is She-Hulk, use D-list villains, make it a comedy book and have it last like four or five years, you know, credit to him and... Um, Uh, Big credit to, of course, Bobby Chase, who is the editor on the title.
2: I mean, that's one of the things I love about this run, too, is the editors are as much a part of the book as She-Hulk. You know, they're constantly talked to and about. They show up in the corners of pages. They write to each other on the page. So you kind of see the creative process in a cheeky way. And I also love that, like, Tom DeFalco as editor in chief at this point is sort of like loomed over it, it's like he's the dark overlord that they have to continue to answer to. Ugh, so good.
1: With those kind of choices and that kind of self-referential style, is there an awareness, Ryan Eulerain, of how like groundbreaking this was at the time? Was this just taking like a not brand X style and making it, you know, a main superhero book? Was this, you know, that something it was taking of like Foom or something like that, and marrying it with a narrative in a bigger way, or is this really the first time that we're We're seeing this with like a, this is a superhero book that's coming out, you know, regularly kind of thing.
2: I mean, theater did it obviously first, as with all things and human storytelling, theater did it first. But, you know, cartoons were wildly popular for doing this and talking directly to the audience and being like, ain't I a stinker? And I think that that definitely, you know, even from the early days of comics would show up. But I just think in superhero genre, it went away because it took away from the dramatic quality of of storytelling so it just kind of has fallen out of vogue in comics and i don't know what what do you think ryan yeah i
0: i I think you know this was just a i I don't want to say like was especially intentionally groundbreaking i think it was trying to be satirical and it was trying to Mm -hmm. have fun and bring humor because that's a tough thing to do we don't get a lot of like funny comic books that last for a long time um we had a straight up like parody book in what the at this time Mm -hmm. which you know is my favorite but there was um there wasn't as far as i remember a lot of like straight up just funny comic books and if we look at what was on sale the same time the first issue was on sale thanks to our producer mr daniel for uh putting this in our uh, research it was january 3rd 1989 when this first issue came out and on sale the same week two G.I. Joe spinoff issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was some new universe stuff, which gets made fun of later in the series. Uh, There's Conan stuff. Um, Strikeforce Moratori is at issue 29, and that's a super serious book. It's really great. Um, And and stuff like Nam Magazine. You know, you look at the line, it's superheroes and some generally, like, more, like, older stuff, not humor, action, adventure, whatever it is. This opened a whole new door of what we could do at Marvel and the stories we could tell. So I think that's sort of the, like the, where it lives. It really gave us something completely different.
2: Yeah. I think right now this book is kind of relevant too, because many of us are working from home and uh, it's definitely like, you can feel John Byrne working alone, you know, (laughs) like um, he's (laughs) collaborating a little bit with his editors and his inker and, and those kinds of things. But like he's talking to himself a lot in the issues. And I think it's, it, there's something sort of like the wonderful fun that you can have being creative by yourself because he was the writer and the artist on the book for most issues. So I just kind of think it's, it sort of fits right now's time.
0: Lorraine, you mentioned the other folks on the book. I wanted to make sure to shout out um, Colors by Glynis Oliver, Letters by John Workham and, and some others. But I wanted to shout out um, the inker for most mm-hmm. of the issues that we read, Bob Wyacek, because he does such a great service to John Byrne's very, like, very detailed, thin mm-hmm. line work. He doesn't over exaggerate it. It doesn't muddy it up. It's really clean work, which really helps sell what John is doing here. And it's wildly detailed. These issues like I, I'm just I try to process as I read this, like what Byrne was working on at this time. The month that the first issue of Sensational She Hulk came out. Um, same month was released uh, a story in Marvel comics presents that he wrote and drew. Um, He was working on a West coast Avengers writing and drawing it. He did a piece in new mutants number 75, where he drew it and he was finishing up his run on star brand as writer and artist. And so during these issues, he's working on Avengers, West coast Avengers, sensational she Hulk. It's wild to, to see how prolific and how talented that he was at this point. Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, he also clearly just loves it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like the way he he presents his work, you can just feel like, I am just having a good time.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good um, point to get into some of the nitty-gritty of the issues because the first issue, the thing that strikes you about any of these issues, I think, are the covers because the covers not only have word balloons on them, which is not something we do much these Mm -hmm. days, but they are also breaking the fourth wall immediately addressing you, the audience, bringing up the fact that this is a comic book, that they mm-hmm. that she understands she lives in a comic book world. The first issue has her holding her first appearance in Savage She-Hulk, which is tremendous. It's so good.
2: I love what this says here. I actually had it open because I also wanted to talk about it because it's so good. She's like, Okay, now this is your second chance because this is, of course, her second ever solo book, uh, the first being Savage. And then she says, if you don't buy my book this time, I'm going to come to your house and rip up all your (laughs) X-Men. Which at the time, you know, X-Men was was the hot cheese whiz as they say.
0: It was the hot cheese whiz, precisely. That is what everyone says about the (laughs) X-Men in (laughs) 1988-89. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had on uh Mark Wade and we mm. were talking about Omega the Unknown and in Omega the Unknown we got into a discussion about Ruby Thursday and the Headmen Oh and, my
2: god uh,
0: and we we spent So perfect like 2 minutes just talking about the glory that is the Headmen <laughs> and when I opened this up I was like oh I forgot the Headmen are the villains <laughs> of the first 3 issues of this It's so good I I need to know what your first experiences were with these glorious, weird villains oh, each man of
1: you. you you know I was loving it,
2: oh, my God. Well, I mean, come on now. First of all, you spend whenever they're introduced, you're like, "Why? <laughs> what is this name, and who are these men? Um, but yeah, they're just guys with like different bodies than their heads. Pretty much. That's That's the gimmick. That's it. Amazing.
0: It's it's ridiculous. And there's even a page where, she Hulk. I think it's issue two or three where she She like does the rundown of who they are and why they're this way. I just, man. In my dreams, the headmen will have a Disney Plus show in like five
2: years. Oh, Ryan, you are the only one who wants that. (laughs) Really interesting. Me
0: and Mark (laughs) Wade, baby. Yeah. 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 I, I love. You know, this issue has the headman, has the ringmaster and the circus of crime. And it's just it, it's really just a, a nice, beautiful setup issue to, you know, remind you who she is. We get her origin. We get her place and everything. Um, you get a little bit of the tone. And I think it, the the series gets more absurd as we mm-hmm. go along. The first issue. I mean, I say that, but the last page of this issue is the full reveal of the headman, including Chandu, which is <laughs> a nightmare creature.
2: Oh, I love right before that, too. She's like, I'm not going to find out who the villains are until issue three, but you'll probably find out on the next page.
0: Yeah. And she looks <laughs> at them. the camera and you're like, "What? whoa, this I'm in for a ride. It's it's so much fun.
2: Chandu is amazing because he essentially has a unicorn horn. He has like griffin feet, like eagle feet. Um, he's got, I, I don't know what to call it, like silly string for arms. <laughs> and I don't know what it's supposed to be. He is truly a horrible, horrible nightmare. Yeah,
0: he is. God bless him. Uh, we get into the second issue and the cover is with the Toad Men and it's referencing a classic Incredible Hulk story where she's even reading <laughs> that yeah. Incredible Hulk comic and she's eating cookies and she's in her super comfy sweater, which something about the way... Byrne draws that sweater, both on the cover and inside. I'm like, I want to wear that sweater.
2: (laughs) Well, I also, it ages in an interesting way, but I do think it's really funny about this book. Like her clothes get kind of weirdly torn off at times or like uh, her shirt like disintegrates when the toad men are shooting her. But there's this sort of sense of like, I love that sweater, (laughs) you know, instead of sort of like the, ooh, no, oops, I'm sexy kind of thing that you kind of expect to see from that sort of sort of male gaze but there, it's really like sort of subverting the male gaze in a really funny way I think um while playing into it at the same time which I don't know I just really cracks me up it, it really does sort of have a great sense of like of uh, like a female point of view that is very sort of knowing and cheeky um as opposed to f- it feeling sort of like creepy uh, c- super creepy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah it it, it it walks that line very, very well um, and, and is, is a hoot. Um, the the second issue we get Mysterio, who is definitely a now at this point I guess B plus level character <laughs> at that point, you know he's like C somewhere in the Cs but still higher up than anybody else has been in the book before. One of the things I love about this and we get the editor's notes about from the Tom defalco, Are just the looks inside She Hulk's apartment that she's taking over for uh, Jenna Van Dyne, the Wasp. I'm like, that apartment is amazing.
2: I know, right? I, I love this part too because at one point Tom DeFalco's like, all right, get back to this Millie the model stuff, which is so tickling because it is like, it's a ton of fashion and like beautiful apartments and ladies just being like, we live in New York. And I love it because it, you know, it's kind of like a story is She-Hulk and J- and Janet Van Dyne. Janet, you know, of course, is like, I am very wealthy. Please enjoy one of my many homes. <laughs> and Jen just sort of like getting the lay of the land and, and feeling whatever. And then, of course, t- t- Toad Men.
0: <laughs> Weird little cockney accented fake yeah. Toad Men, which they show up like. There's no real explanation about them.
2: No, absolutely not. I love not. it. Well, I guess they're part of the illusion. Yeah.
0: But th- right. they, From Mysterio. Mysterio names them as if we like, maybe maybe they are more well-known than I give them credit for. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, yeah, those guys. Sure.
1: I love that panel where they f- like fly in on these little jetpacks. It's like these weird little banshee screams as they kind of like toe this line between being the completely like, least threatening guys in the world, but also somehow posing a threat at the same time. I loved it.
2: Oh, and I was going to say also in this issue, an incredibly important thing to me happens, which is uh, Louise Mason is brought back from retirement. Obscurity, kind of. Super obscurity. So Louise Mason was a superhero in the 1940s called the Blonde Phantom, uh, who was sort of like, the penny to inspector gadget uh, essentially this guy was like the inspector who could he, I, I think he's actually like an fbi agent but he's like the fbi agent who can't ever get anything right and is always missing the clues and the blonde phantom is like this very beautiful sort of woman who looks like she would be in the movie la confidential who <laughs> runs around and solves all the crimes and then essentially hands him like and this is how it was done goodbye and she runs <laughs> off into the night meanwhile she's also his secretary Um, But eventually, you know, that book was canceled. But I love it because they let her grow up. She's old. She's in her 60s um, when she shows up and she's not the blonde baby anymore, which it gets explained in a later issue uh, and is wow. A real feel moment.
0: We'll get to that one because I I loved that. And also that she is nicknamed Wheezy, which is also the nickname for Louise Simonson, um, prolific writer and and editor and creator uh, at Marvel specifically at this time. Um, The Mysterio angle gets us to our third issue and gives us the big guest star with the great cover where you see Spidey dropping in the spotlight like he's uh, like they're on the the Tonight Show. Um, (laughs) It's it's really wonderful. One of the things that I loved about this is that Byrne... Is also, he does an incredible McFarlane impression huh. here in, in the way he draws Spidey. And, you know, mm-hmm. at this time in 1989, that's when Tom McFarlane's Spider-Man is really rolling along. And it, it's an interesting thing to take the character who you're putting him in a guest star in your book and to take him and make him look like he would look in his own book. I think is a really fun and smart and just clever little trick to to sort of sell the illusion a little bit more.
1: I love it because it's that thing where if we were reading this book the week it came out, Ryan, it's something that we talk about on the show all the time where it's just like, oh, it's so cool to see this artist draw this character this week. It's so awesome to see this kind of thing that we don't get that often. You know, I get that buzz reading this, the mixture of Burn and Spider-Man in here. It just, it's so cool.
2: Well, and half of this book is fully a Spider-Man book. There's no (laughs) no She-Hulk. It's just Spider-Man- whipping through the city looking for mysterio kind of tracking him figuring out what what's his deal um and and then of course we get to the headman where it really all pays off <laughs>
0: um yeah and has one of those great moments with the the page where it is head, you know she hulk just as a head telling literally telling jokes and getting a pie in the face uh <laughs> to sort of like say don't worry kids this is a funny
2: book I also appreciate, before she gets her head cut off, she literally says, I thought DeFalco said they couldn't cut my head off. (laughs) Where you can just tell they were like, oh, I can't cut her head off. Okay, I'm just going to make that a note in the page. And what are you going to do about it?
1: I love the moments of just pure silliness in in all of these issues where it's just like inconsequential jokes that are just taking time to be silly for the sake of being silly, like the pie in the face, like so many other things, like I adore that.
0: Yeah. Um, as the the issue wraps up, one of the things that I think recurs throughout the series is She-Hulk being underestimated by someone um, mm-hmm. but also sort of underestimating herself against other people. You know, she like she doesn't like watch her back all the time. She's mm-hmm. like so overconfident in her abilities, which makes sense because she's a freaking Hulk, so she can handle pretty much anything. But, you know, there like Spidey is even like Uh, don't, you're, you're going to be flattened if you go against that giant truck with spikes on it. And she just like, rips it in half. And Spidey's like, oh. Oh,
2: oh, oh, you're different than me. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, can we talk about issue four? Because it starts with my favorite. Let's do it. Um, I just love, it is like prime late eighties fashion. I mean, She-Hulk already Usually has some pretty great fashion because she looks like a fashion model, you know, like a really buff one. Mm-hmm. And she does this amazing sort of like, what am I going to wear to this job interview? And just like, just fashion for fashion's sake. And they're so phenomenal in her 80s power suit. I just super love it. I also, I really do, like, I love her um her villain fights because they tend to be very funny and slapsticky and silly but I really really am sort of living for the B storyline in this I love her sort of normal human life as a lawyer working in the DA's office hanging out with Wheezy who is the heart of this book by far and away yeah she and She-Hulk end up going out to lunch and she's sort of like "Uh, what's going on why you so old though and (laughs) And she tells the most beautiful, heartfelt story about as soon as her ca- her comic strip was canceled, her and uh, Mr. Mason got married, and they because they were sort of forgotten from comic books, they started to age, uh, and it, it, you know finally towards the end of the story, you realize that Mr. Mason is no longer alive, and if only someone had written them sooner, uh, they he might have lived and they might have stayed young forever. Um, And it's just such a sweet, sad, (laughs) poignant story in the middle. Um, While while Wheezy also continues to be like a very funny She-Hulk-esque character who is also sort of uh, very confident but in a different direction. Uh, She also has a great moment where she thinks about wearing her original blonde phantom uh, (laughs) costume, which was essentially a very slinky uh, gown, red gown and she imagines wearing it on her little sort of like stooped over chubby old lady body and it's like nah uh, <laughs> but it's it's just so sweet and it's so earned because you've you know there's so much funny stuff and there's so much action it just feels like the most earned little moment between the two of them
0: and if any of our listeners want to go out there and read um more recent blonde phantom stories paul tobin a friend of mine he had written a a couple uh during the 2000s that i really dug he's a huge blonde phantom fan and resurrected her for more recent times and she's pretty cool
2: yeah um and that issue the the villain is stilt man
0: and what it goes exactly to what i was saying like she underestimates her opponents and gets mm-hmm. like stomped into the ground by oh, the yeah. stilts. But at the same time, Stiltman completely underestimates her because she's a Hulk. And she's just <laughs> like, she's more like annoyed with herself than anything here because she's gonna kick the living crap out of him when she gets the chance.
1: That Stiltman sequence, I gotta say, is so awesome. I love the action in that. The way she gets like punched through the ground by one of the stilts mm-hmm. and then down into the subway. And the way it's visualized, <sighs> where like her. Her like head is getting dragged through a, the roof of a moving train is so cool. It's so imaginative. Literally, never seen anything like that before until I read this. It's just so good, and the way that it takes advantage of like the combination of the panel structure and the height and stature of Stillman is just
0: awesome. So
1: fun.
2: Yeah, I know. I love that. It, it, she's very much like the the hook on an old timey can opener. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. so good.
0: Uh, we get into the next issue, issue number five, uh, which is really fun. It like does a lot of little parodies of you know all kinds of cartoons like the Flintstones and the Jetsons and more. But resurrecting uh, another old, random, weird villain in Doctor Bong. Dr. Bong
2: using his his vibrations to get crazy. Um, Dr. Bong also, I should say, is essentially a a man with a bell for a head. My favorite thing about Dr. Bong is uh, his sexy assistant, Fifi, who is a French duck woman with a sexy, sexy body, but essentially Howard the Duck's face.
0: Yep, it's it. it
2: it is bonkers.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Howard the Duck because Dr. Bong's an old Howard the Duck villain. Howard the Duck Mm -hmm. sort of did a lot of this stuff that is done in this book, you know, 10, Mm -hmm. 15 years earlier, but in a more like mature and subversive way. This, Mm -hmm. you know, this sensational She-Hulk run feels more like vibrant and poppy and um, I don't want to say like family friendly, or anything like that, but it's a it's something that like I don't know that I'd want a kid, one of my kid, if she was like eight years old, necessarily reading nineteen seventy six Howard the Duck comics. But I would give her nineteen eighty nine Sensational She Hulk.
2: Well, I would also say Howard the Duck is filled with existential dread. Yes, whereas She Hulk is like I'm a fabulous lady about town, so I feel like while they they use a lot of the same toolbox it's it's definitely a really different outlook <laughs>
1: <laughs> last thing about this issue for me was i love when we in this issue get into like you know Jen is literally pulling back the page and kind of jumping across like um like such like esoteric you know comic stuff comics inside comics in this way that is like We're making similar jokes today, you know, and Mm -hmm. this is 30 years later. I just think it's so cool. Just that alone.
2: There are so many great things, you know, to the point where it's actually in this issue. She's trying to get back to reality. And she's literally like tearing. She's like, "Okay, we can't get out of this TV that we're trapped in. So we're just going to have to punch our way through the comic book page. And they kind of punch their way out. Ryan, I feel like you would know this. Do you know what that page was that they're in front of? They're, they're in front of like a stats page, like a comic book stats page that I didn't recognize.
0: So this is one of my favorite gags in the entire thing. Uh, and this was also really cool because Weezy set it up, I think, the issue before where um, they were – Jen was like, How do we get from how do we go through the panels? And Wheezy's like, Once you know you're in a comic book, you're, you can do it too. And so she takes that skill that she learns the issue before, takes it here. And so what they do is they bust through one page and go across a two page spread, which is for Big Bucks comics. Um, this is my favorite thing because if you just look at it for what she Hulk and the the character she's saving are doing, they're just walking across these two pages. But in the comics of the day, you would have mail order companies um, who would advertise in Marvel and DC and any comic of like books you can buy from them and you can order from them. And so Big Bucks Comics is a fake company that is selling all kinds of different Marvel books. I read the entirety of all of these oh my lines. Gosh. They are so many jokes in here. It's jam-packed with hilarious bits. I highly implore, take the the 20 minutes it takes to read the entire really fine print of these because there's so many little weird and funny jokes uh, about all the books that Marvel was putting out. Absolutely love the, these two pages. I spent a lot of time looking at these <laughs> earlier. It's so good. Um, we get into the final issue that we're going to talk about here, which is Sensational She-Hulk number six, the cover of which has Jen uh, holding onto a rocket going into space. It has the great Star Trek-ish font at the bottom called Star Trek, which this issue so good. has two uh, kind of two characters that I can't believe are in this book. One being Razorback, who is the dude with the big warthog mask, who is a mutant. So, Tucker, you and I, we need to talk to Jordan D. White and ask him yeah. when Razorback is getting <laughs> brought to Krakoa, getting his mutant powers back, and getting his own title. That's one. And then two was US-1, which is a superhero trucker that went to space. Oh, yeah. I can't believe they spent so much time with US-1. It just glorious.
2: <laughs> It is utterly bucket nuts. This, I mean, all of these issues are just crazy, but man, it is literally just a space truckers issue. Like, that's it. You go to space, there are truckers. I love the truck stop in space, which is, I mean, the art in this book though is super duper crushing It's so, you know, that image that I talked about earlier on in the show, is in this issue, that huge, crazy space collage. It's a big black and white, kind of, you know, Kirby in the 70s moment. It is so good. Um, and then I'm just obsessed with the truck stop because it reminds me of Spaceballs. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's like a big Spaceballs moment where and there's like a million aliens. I can't imagine... Obviously, there's like a you know there's like a Guardians cameo in it of the Guardians 3000, you know, with like Vance Astrovik and that and the Yondu with the you know the big Mohawk situation. Hippie Yondu. Hippie Yondu, yeah. Uh, But I just, it's just a truck stop that is full of a million aliens, and it's they're all different. I love this one that like looks like essentially a huge purple nose with two adorable big eyes and long (laughs) eyelashes. She's just my favorite, and she's just walking with a hot tray of food, and I was like, I feel seen. This is me.
1: That moment, Lorraine, I think, where we get that huge spread, where it's it's black and white, and it's just really beautiful. I think that's it captures this almost like indefinable feeling for me where we're having so much fun. It's so wacky and zany, and then there's this moment of what feels like release where it's just like ah like the glory of comics you know and it's Mm -hmm. a real moment of like like heart for me you know where it's saying like remember this like look at Mm -hmm. like look at what we can do you know and it's just beautiful and and really I don't know if I've ever felt that specific feeling um that that it that it gave me but I just loved it I loved it
2: it's so great. It's also like such a freaking guitar solo for John Byrne. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm doing all this fun stuff that's like good times and whatever. And he's like, but have you seen Space, though, bro? <laughs> like it's just uh, a full-on uh, stage dive. Squee! Yeah. Down the guitar.
0: Yeah. And it ends with the glory that is Zimnu the Titan, most recently seen in the pages of Immortal Hulk, getting to jump out of here and be a big, weird, white, furry self Uh that we only read six issues. We could probably have read all sixty and had a blast. Um I'm really glad you picked this one, Lorraine. It was so good.
2: I am too. I really enjoyed getting to read it again. Also, I'm just really tickled by next issue. I have no mouth and I am mean. (laughs) 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 Zemnu. Oh, what a blessing. Yeah, just such fun. Everybody should go read Sensational She-Hulk, because his is the flippin' best. Yes,
0: Agreed. really is. Uh, Lorraine, thanks for being on the show. Um, I'm sure I'll talk to you again later or tomorrow or whatever <laughs> for something else we're working on.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me, specifically Tucker. Yes. Um, Because I don't get to see Tucker. And uh, <laughs> at, at this point, this is your show now. You are the captain now.
1: <laughs> uh, Lorraine, you know what? You're just a ding-dang delight. Oh, shucks. How dare you? I got him. This interview <laughs> is
0: over.
1: <laughs> A book to match the person, both, like you said, Ryan, ding-dang delights. So much fun to read, so much fun to uh, chat with, with Lorraine. Something that Lorraine mentioned I don't get to do very often, which just makes it all the better. Just the best.
0: Indeed. That about wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, Mar Daniel, and Megan Bagala jill deboff is our director of audio and brad barton aka Paulist's audio development manager tries to break through the fourth wall but he keeps on breaking his hands the <laughs> fool anyway i'm ryan and i'm tucker and this is marvel your universe